All right, uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to 1 Timothy. So if you start, actually, maybe it'd be easy to start at the back of your Bible and just go a couple of books um, over and you're going to find 1 Timothy. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 3. The big numbers are your chapters and the small numbers are your verses. We're going to start in verse 1. Uh, I'll read for us verses 1 through 8. Um, if you're visiting with us, we're glad to have you. Uh, we've been walking through the books of Matthew and also 1 Timothy. And we just go... Uh, chapter by chapter and verse by verse. So this morning we're in First Timothy chapter three. We're going to look at verse one through eight, and uh, it's because uh, last time we were in First Timothy, we looked at chapter two. Um, so here we are in uh, chapter three this morning. Uh, let me uh, uh, read this for us, and then I'll pray. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he does a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household How will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with the conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank You very much that it is true that great is Your faithfulness. And Lord, the truth is, we don't even know how great it is. We can only sing of how great it's been in our lives. And Lord, uh, it has been amazing. You have been incredibly faithful. Lord, one of the ways that we know that You are faithful is that we're here. That we're here in this church and that we are gathered around, reading together, studying, talking about, and considering Your Word. What an amazing treat that is. You, the God of the universe, You don't owe us anything. And yet You've been kind enough to tell us about Yourself, reveal Yourself in Your Word. And Lord, I pray that we would continue to trust it. Trust it, Lord, for our own lives. Trust it, Lord, in how we live and conduct our lives. Lord, trust it as we may face even death. And trust it, Lord, for life after death. And trust it as we think of how to be a church. And trust it as we structure what it looks like to be a church. So I ask Your blessings and help this morning, Lord, that You would help us. Uh, Lord, that You would uh, give us wisdom and attentiveness. In Your name we pray. Amen. Well, um, first of all, I've got to tell you, I'm, I'm excited to be standing uh, and, and I'm feeling a lot better. Last time I was with you, I had to sit down to preach because I was feeling uh, so sick and the Lord has been merciful and I feel much better. I, can, I think I have 95% of my hearing back in the ear that I had lost some quite a bit of hearing and Lord, uh, i got to say to the Lord, thank you. Uh, any of you all who suffer from hearing loss, I really feel for you now. That is really tough. 
I felt like I was uh, always dazed and confused for weeks. My wife would probably want me to put in there more dazed and confused than usual. Um, so anyway, I, it's good to be standing. I'm glad to be looking at this text together. Uh, I, I hope you come ready to learn this morning because we've got a lot to look at. It's a really dense text. I'm really excited about it um, for us to look at it. So remember, we've been walking through the book of 1 Timothy. The first chapter that we looked at in 1 Timothy taught us about... Uh, the importance of the gospel and the importance of teaching and, and, and how a strong warning from Paul against false teaching. Uh, and we saw that. We saw Paul as he's writing. Remember, Paul is writing a book to, a church, to Timothy. Paul started a church in a city called Ephesus, which is in now modern-day Turkey. He started this church. Timothy's now in charge at the church. Um, and there is one of the ones in charge of the church, and he's writing to him to tell him how to conduct affairs uh, there at the church. And so he first warns him in the first chapter against poor leadership and false teaching. He then in the second chapter uh, goes on to explain the importance of prayer and public worship, praying for those who are not of the faith. And then in particular, he then moves on and says, what are the roles of men and women in the church? Um, And we looked at that very concrete stuff that's very helpful and applicable for us today. Now, he keeps on the, the uh, path of practical and applicable, um, and he goes to talk about what about the leadership of the church. And he's going to show us in chapter 3 that there are two main offices in the church, the office of pastors um, and then the office of deacons. Today we're going to look at the office of pastors, and then uh, the next time we're in First Timothy, we'll look at the office of deacons. Okay, so the first thing I want us, we're going to look together this morning, um, divided it into three uh, sections for us, the nature of the office of pastor, the duties of the office, and the character of the office holder. The nature of the office, the duties of the office, and the character of the office holder. Alright, so verse 1 says, This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. That's what the word says here. Now, if the first thing we need to ask is, well, who is an overseer? What is an overseer? And that's the question of what is the nature of this office? What is he, what office is he even telling us about? He's going to tell us about a lot of qualifications for somebody who has an office, but, but what is the office? Well, if you, if you have the King James version of your Bible or the New King James, so that's the translation that you're looking at, you're not going to see the word overseer there. About every other translation has overseer, but the King James or New King James actually going to have the word bishop. Um, and not overseer. It's just a way that you translate it. Uh, either way is fine. Um, the interesting thing, this office actually is covered in three different words all across the New Testament. And they're used interchangeably. And the, those words uh, are uh, pastor, elder, or bishop, um, or overseer. So you've got overseer, bishop, pastor, and elder. They're used interchangeably to speak of the exact same office across the New Testament. And if you want to see this, we're not going to take time to turn there now. It's actually really helpful. In Acts chapter 20, uh, you get the exact same group of people being talked about, and it uses three different words. You get bishop or overseer, you get elder, and you also get pastor. And that's in Acts 20, you'd look at verse 17, 27, and 28. Now, I'm going to tell you up front, the first 15 minutes, we're going to hit a lot of stuff. There's going to be a lot of verses coming at you on the PowerPoint. 
just relax. If you don't have time to write those all down, in the back, uh, as soon as you walk out there in the welcome area, I've put for you all the slides printed out. There's plenty of copies, so you can grab it, and it's all there for you. All the verses I'm going to cover are there. So you can relax. Don't worry about jotting it all down. It's out there. Um, that, that gives me some freedom to feel like I can speed up. Though if you were at the secret church, you know what talking fast really means. I'm not going to do that to you. Uh, I promise. <clears throat> So, uh, they're used interchangeably. The office of pastor, elder, overseer. I'll probably use pastor and elder interchangeably today. We don't usually talk overseer or bishop's not one that we use that often in contemporary church. So I'll just probably use pastor um, or elder. The next thing that we should talk about in the nature of uh, this office is how is it demonstrated across the New Testament? Well, all the churches in the New Testament, we're told a lot about the churches in the New Testament. All the churches in the New Testament had pastors, every one of them. Moreover, in each of these churches, there was a plurality. That means more than one pastor. So every church had more than one pastor. No church had just a single Pastor, um, And let me give you a couple places where you can see this most explicitly. Um, and then I'll even give you some more references you can look at later. Uh, probably most explicit is in Acts 14. Acts 14 is a story. Um, only in Acts you get this. Paul gets uh, uh, thrown out of a city and they throw rocks at him. They, they, they stone him. Uh, and then he decides to get up, go back to that city and a couple more and kind of take care of things, make sure the churches are okay before he heads out. And this is the story of that. In Acts 14.21, he and Barnabas, it said when they... I got it up here for you. When they And by the way, these guys are going to have to really move this morning, so uh, thank you to these guys. They are doing a great job keeping up. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Now listen to this, verse 23. And when they had appointed elders, or that could be pastors, or, uh, or um, overseers, that's plural, for them in every church. They didn't just appoint a pastor or an elder, they appointed elders or pastors. Uh, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Let me give you another spot in Titus, um, in Titus chapter 1, verse 5. This is Paul writing to uh, Titus. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders, that's again plural, in every town as I directed you. Um, a couple other main points of why I think it's so pervasive in the New Testament. Of the four New Testament authors, there's four New Testament authors who write about the office of pastor. All of them refer to the offices fulfilled by more than one pastor. A group of pastors and elders in each church. James in James 5.14 does this. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. Paul in Philippians 1.1, 1, 1, 1 Timothy 4.15, 4.14, 5.17, and Titus 1.5. And Luke in Acts 14.23 and 20.17. Up there for you so that if you want to take a look at these later, in fact, I'd love for you to... Furthermore, every church in the New Testament that we have record of has a group of pastors. Here's a geographical coverage of that for you. 
Jerusalem, we see it in Acts 15.22, had, bo- had, had a group. Ephesus, Acts 20.17. All the churches in the town of Crete, in Titus 1.5. All the churches James wrote to when he said to the twelve tribes of the dispersion, which is a dispersed group of churches in James 5.14. All the churches in Pontus, Galatius, Cappadocia, Asia, Asia and Bithynia uh, that Peter wrote to. Uh, had a group. We can see that in 1 Peter 5.1. And finally, all the churches Paul founded on the first missionary journey, and we presume all the rest, we can also see all had elders. So the pervasive witness of the New Testament is that churches should have a plurality of pastors or elders. That's just the way the New Testament lays it out. And such it seems wise that we should follow that pattern today. Now i got to tell you, when I years ago began studying these texts and I became just blown away by the textual evidence on this. It was startling. I remember thinking to myself at one point, well, what do I do? I mean, if the New Testament is this way, do I, can I even still be Baptist? And I'll tell you the reason I asked that is because every Baptist church I'd known of at the time only had one pastor. And I thought the New Testament's pretty clear that they should have a plurality of pastors. So I really did. I thought, well, can I be Baptist? Good news. Um, what I found out is I just didn't know a lot about Baptist churches. <laughs> uh, I began to realize there's lots of Baptist churches today who have a plurality of pastors um, and have that distinction. And, uh, and, the, and there are many more that are continuing to do that. Yet, probably what blew my mind the most is that historically, all Baptist churches had more than one pastor. Blew my mind historically. Uh, all Baptist churches historically had more than one pastor. Um, listen to this brief quote by the very first president of the Southern Baptist Convention. This is in 1846. Remember, we founded in 1845. W.B. Johnson of South Carolina, he wrote in his book, The Gospel Developed, um, he writes this, A plurality in the overseers is of great importance for mutual counsel and aid that the government and edification of the flock may be promoted in the best manner. Now, he's not talking here about deacons. He's talking about the biblical office of pastor because the rest of his paragraph there goes on to describe those different words I just laid out for you. And I actually have here, don't worry, I'm not, I love you too much to go through all these. There are nine different Baptist statements from the year 1609 all the way up to 1963. I went and looked at there's uh, these different statements of faith from the year 1609 to 1963, all explaining that Baptist churches had a plurality of pastors. Um, but I thought this one would be the one that, that would be interesting for you to see. Out of the Southern Baptist Statement of Faith, this is in uh, 1925 version of the Baptist Faith and Message. Listen to this. A church of Christ is a congregation of baptized believers associated by covenant in the faith and fellowship of the gospel. Its scriptural officers are bishops or elders... And deacons. It's incredibly clear. It actually is interesting that when we, in the, even in the current Southern Baptist Statement of Faith, the Baptist Faith and Message of 2000, the, it doesn't change it to say its scriptural officers are a pastor and deacons. 
But it actually, the only thing different it does is it changes the word from elders to pastors because that's used more pervasively. Um, and so you see it here. This is out of the current Southern Baptist Statement of Faith. If you go online, you can look at it. I'm sure we got copies around here as well. It's scriptural officers are pastors, plural, and deacons. Uh, so it seems that the need for a church to have a plurality of pastors has strong biblical and historical grounding. Um, in the churches in both the New Testament and across uh, the, the history, here's the interesting thing. This group of men who lead, these pastors or elders, whatever you want to call them, some are supported financially by the church, but many are not. In fact, many, if you look at many of the church uh, statements of faith and bylaws uh, in historic uh, uh, Baptists, they actually stipulate that the majority should not be paid staff that they should be lay people who meet the biblical qualifications uh, and, and not uh, paid staff because you run the risk of paid staff leaving and going somewhere else and there being a vacuum in the church until that can be filled. And they wanted to guard against that by making sure you had lay elders uh, as most of them. So anyway... There's a lot more to say there. The only main thing I want to make sure is that we understand what the New Testament is talking about it when it's talking about it in this text when it says overseer. That's the picture of what it uh, looks like. So, um, oh, let me also say, I also think there's good reason, I'm not going to argue for it right now, but I think there's good reason to think there should probably always be a senior pastor. One, though there's an equal authority among the elders and pastors, there should be one guy who is in charge of representing to the body and communicating to the body. There's That seems wise, and obviously you would think that would be one of the ones who would be vocational. But anyway, so the nature of the office is that it is... Um, uh, represented by the words overseer, bishop, elder, or, um, and pastor, and that it, it is a plurality according to the New Testament. Next thing, the duties of the office. So what? that's the nature of it. What about the duties? Well, if you look back there, verse 1, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer... Right here, we get one of the main duties of this office. It is an office of oversight. It is an office of authority. It Part of the job of the pastors is, is oversight. In particular, what? Well, I think there are a couple places that, that you see that in the New Testament being done. They are to provide direction and vision. So direction is a major part of that. Secondly, when we see Paul actually exercising this at the beginning of 1 Timothy, they are to lead in the discipline process of members who continue an un, uh, willingly continue an unrepentant sin. Now, do not misunderstand me. They are to oversee that. That does not mean that they are the ones who discharge members. That is exclusively held for the congregation. We know that because of Matthew chapter 18 and because of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. That is the job of the congregation, but it's the job of the elders to help oversee that and manage that. Um, So I think in discipline um, and in direction. And yet another duty of the elder can be seen at the end of verse 2. We get an overseer in verse 2 must be above reproach, husband of one wife, we're going to come back and look at all this, but at the very end of the verse we get, he must be able to teach. 
And this stands out in the uh, whole list because this is the only qualification that does not have to do explicitly with the candidate's character and has to do with ability. That is, one of the duties of the pastoral office is a duty to teach, have the ability to teach. So you might put this, and I like to put this in, he leads or these Elders, pastors together lead in securing, knowing, sharing, and loving doctrine. Securing, knowing, and sharing, and loving doctrine. One cannot teach what you do not know or love, and you cannot love what you're not willing to secure and not willing to share. So the pastors oversee direction, discipline, and doctrine. Uh, major uh, jobs of the, of the elder. So the overarching duties of the elder are oversight or authority and teaching. And you're going to see, this is what's interesting, when we consider next time the, the qualifications for deacons, you're going to be interested, in, and go ahead, please, go ahead and take time to read that passage, be ready for that passage. You're going to see that there are a lot of overlaps between the qualifications but those two duties are not there for deacons uh, in, the, in the Scripture. That is, it is not asked of deacons to have to, to exercise oversight, and it's not asked of deacons to have to be able to teach. A deacon does not have to be qualified and able to teach. Um, but a pastor does, an elder does. Furthermore, this should conjure up for us a helpful biblical connection that Paul is trying to make. Where did we last see the two activities in 1 Timothy of authority and teaching? Remember, we saw them in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Paul said women should be very much part of the church and there's lots that they should do. There are two things that he says we cannot allow for a woman to do. There are distinct roles. One is they're not supposed to teach, and the other is they're not supposed to exercise authority over a man. It's not happenstance that the two overarching duties of the eldership, pastor, happen to be what? Teaching doctrine and oversight. So it seems clear... And this is why the Baptist Faith Message 2000, the exact same article I just read, appends right after talking about this. They append that this function of pastor or elder is to be reserved for men only. Because the Scriptures seem to, not just seem to indicate it, strongly indicate that. And it's the exact two passages we just looked at. 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Timothy uh, 3. And those passages. Alright. So we've looked at the, uh, the nature, we've looked at the duties, and now on to the characteristics, and this is where Paul spends most of his time, of the office holder. One has said, and I love this, that the most remarkable thing about the qualifications of, a, of the overseers, of the pastors, elders, is how unremarkable they are. The most remarkable thing is that they're so unremarkable. I think it's interesting. Here's what is meant by that, and it's dead right. You're not going to see anything like superior IQ. Not there. Nothing like charismatic personality or, or, or powerful personality. It's not there. 
That's not needed. That's not necessary for this office. And by the way, I want to be real careful when I say able to teach. That does not have anything, that has nothing to do with having a degree. A man does not need to have a degree to be able to teach. One of the most profound Baptist pulpiteers in the history of Baptist life is a guy by the name of C.H. Spurgeon, and you tell me how many seminary degrees he had. Zippo, and I'm not talking about the lighter, right? He has none, but he's able to teach. Um, because he knows the Word, and he loves the Word, and he wants to secure it, and he wants to share it. Side note, but I think that needs to be said. Um, so, uh, one of the most remarkable things is how unremarkable it is. And that's because God doesn't need remarkable people to lead His church. He needs faithful people. It's also because there's not a double standard. It's not like you're going to read anything in this list and go, okay, now the pastors and elders have to do that, but we don't. The pastors and elders are not allowed to be drunkards, but the rest of us, well, we can. The pastors and elders are not allowed to slug somebody, but the rest of us have license to slug, right? It's not going to be there. There's nothing like that. Uh, it's unremarkable. That's the whole point. The only thing they're asked to do is the exact same qualifications everybody else do, but they're supposed to lead an example. That's the key. So verse 2, Therefore an overseer must be above reproach. In many ways, this qualification serves as the overarching qualification. Above reproach. This means that an elder is supposed to live his life in such a way that nothing in his life brings reproach upon himself or the church. This is a big deal. When you look at the elder's life, there shouldn't be questionable ways that he lives uh, in such a way that people question the integrity of the office or the integrity of the church, or worse, the integrity of Christ and the Scriptures. He should be above reproach. And I think it's a big deal that we also emphasize Paul is talking in every one of these areas about his present life. That doesn't mean that there's not room for people who had a, a messed up past to be in a position later because of God's redemptive grace of pastor or elder. What he's talking about is if you look at his present life and in the way that the pattern of life that he leads and the way he conducts himself, you should see a man who is above reproach. Alright, this next one. The husband of one wife is a tough one. It has enjoyed a wide variety of interpretations across the ages of Christianity. Just to put it very mildly. Um, I want us to look at a couple of these today. We aren't going to look at all of them. Uh, uh, we, but we want to look at some. The reason, you say, well, why? It's because Paul actually writes this in a, in, a, in a stranger way than one might think. I think he actually writes it quite clear, but uh, it is because of the way he wrote it, people have taken it wrong. It actually literally says, of one woman man. That's the exact translation. Of one woman man. That's the exact translation. Of one woman man. So if, you, if I tell you that one of the qualifications for this office is that this person must be of one woman man, then I ask you, what does that mean? You can see that you would probably at least have to think about it a little bit because that's not the way we generally put those together. Fair? 
All right, so that's exactly why. Well, let me go through a couple. Um, some have understood this to exclude single men from serving the office of pastor or elder. I gotta tell you, I really don't think that's what's going on here. Most especially because Paul himself was, for the, at least for most of the ministry we know of, single. Uh, could have gotten married in prison or something like that, but we don't know about it. We know when he writes 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he's not married, mainly because he says, I'm not married. Um, so we know he's not married, and we also know in the exact same chapter of 1 Corinthians 7, he actually extols the advantages of singleness. He's, and in particular, he extols the advantages of singleness because he says, you're going to be a whole lot freer than the married people when it comes to ministry. And I'm married, and I absolutely love to be married, and it's helped me a lot in my ministry. But let me also tell you, he's right. Any man who's married has to take care of and should take care of his wife and his children. So he's not going to have the free time that a single man's going to have. So I don't think it excludes singleness. Uh, not to mention that it would exclude Paul and also great people like Augustine, and that would really make me upset. So um, no, that, that's, I don't think that's in view. Some have understood this to exclude men who have been divorced. I've got to tell you, on one hand, I'm very sympathetic to this interpretation. There is good reason to think that the contemporary church has been dangerously flippant and casual on the issue of divorce. There's no doubt that the contemporary church has probably been flippant about how we view it compared to how the scriptures view it um, and what the scriptures hold up for the office or for the union of marriage. So you can see how that, along with the previous qualification of above reproach, would lead people to think that uh, a divorced man uh, cannot be admitted to this office. Um, and I, I fully agree that because of the issue of above reproach, one should be very cautious uh, about considering any candidate who has been divorced. But I have to tell you, and I, I really have over the years looked at this one quite closely, I can't in, with integrity tell you that I think that's what Paul has in view here. I do not think Paul is ruling out the possibility of a divorced man serving as a pastor or elder with this statement. Because I don't think that's what he means by the phrase of one woman man. Of one woman man. It does not jive with the text. Paul is not known for being an indirect writer. He's one of the most direct writers in the, that you'll ever find. He's got a lot more direct ways of ruling out men who have been divorced. For example, he could have said he cannot be divorced. That would be a pretty direct way of saying, here's what I mean, cannot be divorced. There are words for divorced in the Greek, like the word divorced. He could have used it. So he could have said, if a person has been divorced, they're ruled out. But he doesn't. Uh, it, it doesn't seem that. It also seems to me to set up, though divorce is a, uh, a horrible thing, and yes, uh, divorce is a sinful thing, it's not an, the uh, ir, unforgivable, unpardonable sin. I think it can be pardoned. Uh, and and I, I don't think in this statement Paul is ru ruling it out. Now, I'm sure there's going to be a lot more questions. I'd love to dialogue with you about it, uh, but let me be clear about what I'm saying. Should the church be very cautious about asking a man who's been divorced to serve as a pastor or elder? Absolutely, without a doubt. 
But I see no reason why being divorced necessarily disqualifies a candidate. Again, I think we would have to be careful in considering that, but it doesn't necessarily rule them out. i got to tell you, I have a strong conviction to follow what the Scriptures say. I hope I've demonstrated that. I want to be courageous. If it says it, it says it. But you've got to be just as courageous to say, if I don't see it, I don't see it. And let's not go any further than it goes. So there you go. We can talk more about it later. All right. So if it doesn't mean single and it doesn't mean that he's divorced, what does Paul mean by of one woman man? <laughs> well, I think he means that if a pastor is married, then you should be able to look at his life and describe him as a person who is of one woman. Okay, Tim, well, what do you mean by that? Well, it means that you should not look at his life and say that he is of more than one woman. shouldn't look at his life and say he is of more than one woman. So, for example, if he's married to more than one woman, polygamist, he's out. Uh, now, you and I kind of joke about that and go, oh, that's not that big of a deal. Uh, we can think of some places in the country where it might be and we like to laugh and joke. Yeah, try sharing the gospel in Muslim tribes and seeing a leader of one of those tribes get converted who has eight wives. Who's the most likely guy you want to put up to be the pastor of the church? The guy with eight wives, right? Because he's the leader. He's the one that could influence everybody else. And the answer is he cannot serve in that role. He's not qualified. If you look at his life, you cannot say he is of one woman man. Can't do it. It also means if you look at a man who's married to only one woman, can you still describe him as a man who is of one woman? That is, is he faithful? Is he, does he have sexual fidelity to one woman and one woman only? If so, he's qualified. So I think that's what he means when he says of one woman man. He cannot be a man who is of more than one woman in terms of his fidelity. And polygamy is out. Not that you're going to walk home shocked about that. Can't believe Tim said polygamists can't serve as pastors yet. Well, that hopefully is not a newsflash for anybody. Mm. Don't make jokes, Tim. Keep going. All right. Um, there's that would be trouble. That's one of those times in the pulpit you have to just say not not going to do it here. All right. So, three qualifications. Others uh, that verse two continues with: sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable. These three qualifications all go together. They have to do with orderliness of life. So first, he's supposed to be sober-minded or temperate. This is a pastor, elder should be clear-headed. He should have a strong sensibility about him that's not influenced by any substance whatsoever. It's similar to the next qualification. He should be self-controlled. He should be able to control his appetites and have an ability to discipline himself to engage in things he should, such as study and exercise. He, he should be disciplined, self-controlled. And third, he should be respectable. It doesn't mean he should be pompous. It should not mean that he is arrogant, far from it. But he should be one, a person that people can respect. Next, it says that he should be hospitable. Pastors should be hospitable. There should be a welcoming spirit about him. He should be a person who welcomes others and cares for others. But he should be willing to open up his home and engage in people's lives. Be willing to give of his time and of his money to get to know other people, care for them. 
It should be true of all believers, but it certainly should be an example set by those who serve in the office of pastor or elder. He should not, verse 3, be a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not lover, uh, not a lover of money. Again, I told you, you're going to look at this and go, what's remarkable is how unremarkable it is. Again, it's probably not a newsflash to you that a pastor shouldn't be a drunkard. I hope you don't walk in here and go, I had no idea. I had no idea, right? Um, or you shouldn't walk in and go, he can't be violent? Come on! It's a little rigid, Paul, right? But that's what Paul is saying. He's, being, he's helping us see all believers. No believer should be a drunkard. That is... The last one was talking about that he's self-controlled or temperate. That is, that, that he has the ability to control his appetites. But this one has to do with his reputation. People shouldn't look at him and think, that guy's a drunkard. That, that's who he is. No, he's out. If people look at him and think that, he's disqualified to be a pastor. The next three have to do with peacemaking. He should not be violent. He shouldn't be violent in word or action. He should not be physically violent or verbally violent. And not only should it be the case he's not violent, but you actually look at him and think of him as gentle. He's one who is patient. He's slow to anger. He's not rude or abrupt, but he's calm and he's caring and he controls his temper. He is not quarrelsome. He's not looking to stir up confrontation or further confrontation, but instead to stifle it and to bring peace. A pastor should be known to not should not be known as a man with a temper, but as gentle, as self-controlled, and as peaceable. And lastly, he should not be a lover of money. Very neat way Paul puts that. His lifestyle should be should reflect little love for material things. He should demonstrate such a solid trust in the provision of God that he does not need money to calm his anxieties or give him joy. He has God and God alone to calm his anxieties and to bring him joy. He should be a person who loves money so little that he gives it away freely. This is a qualification for a pastor. Verse 4. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for the people of God? This is one where Paul actually gives us a qualification and gives us a reasoning behind it. I want us to begin with the end and go backwards. I want us to begin with the reason that he gives us and go backwards. So he says, if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So the argument is, if he, if he can't manage his own household, how is he going to manage in the church? That's the whole argument that he's setting up, right? Um, I tell you, I was blessed by what Paul does not say here. I want you to see what he does not say. Now, obviously, you could be here all day saying what he does not say, but there are a couple. There's something he doesn't say that I would not have been shocked had he said. Listen, to what he doesn't say. First, he doesn't say his church, i.e., the leader's church. So he doesn't say how can if for someone does not manage his own household well, how we care for his church. He doesn't say that. 
He explicitly puts in the word God here. Oh, I'm so thankful for that. This church does not belong to any leader. No leader owns this church. This church has an owner, and this church is possessed by someone, but that is God and God alone. God is the one who owns churches. No man does that. That's really helpful in a text on what it means to be a pastor or an elder. I'm thankful for that, but man, I'm really thankful for the verb verb use. Listen to this. He switches verbs on you. Just watch. He says, if he cannot manage his house, so manage is the word he uses there, how, but then he changes and he says, then how, then he cannot care for God's church. If he cannot manage his house, how can he care for God's church? What's the big deal? Well, manage is the typical word you would expect here. It's the word that's used for leadership. That makes sense. But the word care is really different. Actually, check. It's only used in one other place in the entire New Testament. Follow this. It's beautiful. It's used in Luke chapter 10, twice. So Paul uses it here to talk about what a pastor does to a church. He cares for it. But it's only used one other place. Luke 10, the story of the Good Samaritan. Now, you might remember this story. This is a story where you have the Jewish man who is on a trip and he gets robbed and he's left for dead. He's laying in a ditch. And first walks by a holy man and he does nothing for him. Next comes by a priest and he does nothing for him. And finally, there comes down the road what? A Samaritan. And given the incredible racial tension between Samaritans and Jews, you think this Samaritan's not going to go anywhere near this Jewish guy laying in the ditch, right? He has no reason to help the guy in the ditch. But he goes and he helps the guy in the ditch. Now, just follow me. Luke 10, verse 34 says this, And he went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set his own animal and brought him, and took him to an inn, and he took care. That's the word. Of him. Hold on. And the next day, he took out two denarii, it's about two, two or three days' wages, and he gave him to the innkeeper, and he said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So you get this. You got a person who's helpless laying in the ditch. You got another guy coming along who has no business having anything to do with this guy, let alone helping him. And he comes and he helps him and he takes care of him. And then he goes and he takes him to an inn and he says, now you take care of him while I'm away. Just stay with me. It just so happens that the only other place in the whole New Testament that that word care is used is when Paul is talking about the care that a pastor has for a church. i got to tell you, I would never have thought about putting together the story of the Good Samaritan and the story of a pastor in the church. But it's perfect. It's perfect. What is the church full of but a bunch of messed up people lost in their sins until a rescuer who has no business having anything to do with them comes along. The Bible is crystal clear. 
Every single human being, everyone is lost in their sin. Helpless. Gonna die and deserves it. God has no business having anything to do with us as sinful humans. He shouldn't even come near us. And He comes and He does what? He rescues us in the cross of Christ. He cares for us. Brother, sister, friend, if you're here and you've never placed the full trust of your life in the person of Jesus Christ, I want to be honest and tell you, you're the guy in the ditch. I was the guy in the ditch. This is a room full of people in the ditch or who were in the ditch. You have no hope. But there is a God, a God who lovingly came, gave, the, gave His life in the person of Jesus Christ to rescue you. And He binds up your wounds and He cares for you. If you place your faith and your trust in Him, that's the gospel. It's the incredible news. Oh, but goodness, this gets better. So the guy takes the man and he puts him in an inn or a hospital. What analogy have we used the most in talking about what the church is? But we've called it what? A hospital. Why? Because look around you. It's full of a bunch of sick people. That's the way you get in here. You admit the fact that you're sick. I'm lost. I'm alone. I need help. I trust in Christ and I want to join together with other people who admit that they need help and trust in Christ. That's what the church is. It's a hospital. The guy puts a, the rescuer, puts the man on his animal, carries him to the hospital, and he tells the man at the hospital, now you take care of him, but don't worry. I'll provide for all of his needs. You won't suffer any expense. And in case you do, I, remember these words at the end of 35, I will repay you when I come back. What are pastors? Well, there are people who have been rescued out of the ditch who God says, I want you to go serve in the hospital. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be bringing you a bunch of messed up people. They're going to come in one after the other. The way they get in is they admit they're messed up and they need help. You know what you're going to do? You're going to care for them. And you're going to give your life doing it. It's going to cost you a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of work. Just in case, at any point along that road, you get weary and you think it's costing me too much, would you remember? I'm going to repay you all of it. I've already paid for it. I tell you, that has helped me so much this week. That's the beauty of the church. I'm a messed up sinner. God's given me the opportunity to serve. 
a bunch of other messed up sinners. And I'm not going to spend a dime or a minute that He's not going to fully repay. Now you tell me that's not the most amazing living organization you've ever heard of. That's the church. It's beautiful. Okay, meanwhile, back at the ranch, where we left off. We left off with verse 5 when he says, uh, in verse 5, For someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God? That's the argument. So what is he saying? Well, he's saying that he must manage his own household well. And how does he describe it in verse 4? With all dignity. So there must be dignity there in keeping his children submissive. That doesn't mean his children are going to be perfect. My son is hitting the age of uh, 18 months. I found out for sure that I am his dad and Adam is, is his real dad. Um, uh, Adam, the, the first Adam where he got his sinfulness the other day, out of nowhere, he smacked me in the face. Now, this is an 18-month-old that I, I don't think he's ever seen me smack him. I know I haven't. He's never, I've never smacked my wife. I don't know where he learned to smack, but he smacked me. I've never done anything to him, right? I mean, I've changed his diapers. I've given him food. I care for him. Why'd you smack me? You know what? I mean, I got, I've done some studying in the Scriptures. Do you know what I said to him? Where did you learn to do that? I just died laughing as soon as I said it. Oh, yeah. I know you learned that. It's called the Garden of Eden, buddy. <laughs> it's exactly right. So, yeah, that doesn't mean that a pastor's family or the children are going to be perfect. But it means they better be submissive. I like the way that one person put it. It doesn't mean that a pastor or an elder's children won't disobey, but they better do so painfully. They better not be encouraged to do so. Now, there's a parallel passage in Titus 1 that parallels this passage, and it has made people wonder if that is also requiring that a pastor's children be uh, believers. There's an argument that I had down for that to give you, and then I decided to put in the story about Luke 10 instead, and you'd be glad because the other one's quite boring. Um, the short answer is no, but if you'd like to hear more, I'll be glad to tell you later. So no, they don't have to be believers. It's really easy answer on that one, in my opinion. If you require a pastor's children to be believers, then aren't you putting that man in charge of the salvation of anyone? And isn't the scripture, aren't the scriptures quite clear that no man's in charge of anybody's salvation save it's for God alone? That's the shortened version and be thankful for it. Um, Alright. Verse 6, he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall in the condemnation of the devil. A pastor shouldn't be new to the faith. He should have been around the faith for a while. He should have gone through some trials. He should have lived through some stuff. He, he, he should uh, have, have been tested. Now, I think it's interesting that the reason he puts behind it, what's the reason he tells him to not let a man who's a new convert be a pastor? The reason he gives them is so that he won't be puffed up. That's really helpful. You know why I find that helpful? Because if you've been in the faith and truthfully walked in the faith and you are still arrogant, then I'm telling you, you're missing something big time. When you walk with Christ and you walk closely with Him, especially if you walk in any way in leadership, it doesn't take you long at all to realize you better be quite humble because there's so much you don't know 
There's so many things you aren't prepared for and you haven't even begun to see how sinful your heart really is. So any man that's a new convert, Paul says, no, 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 be careful. Do not admit him to that office too early because there's a good chance he's going to remain puffed up. He does not yet realize how bad he needs rescuing. I think that's short of it. Verse 7, Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Paul says a pastor or elder should be well thought of, not just by those in the church, but outsiders. People who aren't even involved in the church ought to look at the person and say, yeah, you know, he's a good guy. He's trustworthy. He's a good man. It's a respectable reputation. I I, I like going back um, to where my dad grew up Small, small community. Um, they're, uh, they don't care what my name is. They, 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 they don't care. They just want to know who my dad is and want to know who his dad is, right? That's what they care about. So the, usually if I walk in a gas station or whatever, now you are, that's their way of saying who, you know, whose son are you? I say, well, my, my grandpa is OC. My dad's Charlie. Oh, smiles light up. Those are good men. You know what that means? They've got a reputation. They've got a reputation. They're well thought of in the community. That should be what an elder is. And I like the way that he puts this. There's a reason for it. This is really helpful for me, for, for you I hope as well. Why? So that he may not fall into disgrace, to snare of the devil. In other words, he doesn't fall into sin. What does that mean? You know what that means? It means, if you want to know how susceptible you are to sin and falling into disgrace, you ought to check what the people outside of the church think of you. That will give you a pretty good idea. If they look at you and they don't think you're a trustworthy, hard-working, good person, they don't have to understand all the theological categories that we use in the church. Save that for us. But if they don't think that you're a good person... And folks, that's probably a good indication you are very susceptible to sin. Something's not jiving. Something's not right. So Paul says an elder should be well thought of by outsiders. So if you wanted to sum it all up, you could sum up this whole discussion, I think, with four, four D's. Direction, discipline, doctrine, and distinction. As an elder, should live a life that's an example, that's distinct. It's not perfect by any means. And it really shouldn't, you shouldn't look at it and go, now that's incredible compared to the rest of us. It. Not necessarily. It just ought to jive with what the Scriptures ask for. There should be a faithfulness there. Let me uh, close us in prayer. Father, I thank You so much for Your Word. Goodness gracious, how would we ever think about church How will we know how beautiful it is if it were not for Your Word? But You've given it to us. You've given it to us freely. Lord, I thank You that You have been kind um, and given it. And Lord, I ask that You would help us to continue to study it and consider it as we think about what it means to be faithful as a people of God, as leaders in the church and as the church. Pray that You'd help us, God. Give us wisdom. Give us humility. 
Lord, I pray if there's anybody here who isn't banking their trust on Christ, Lord, that you would move in their heart. Lord, that you would help them see their need for you. See the fact that the gospel tells us we have a rescuer in Christ. There's nothing we can do. We're helpless. But we can trust. We can trust in Christ and in Christ alone. And he will save us. We ask all these things to you, our Father, through the strong name of Christ, to be applied in our midst by your Spirit. Amen.